I'm a substitute preacher for Redeemer. Uh, so if you're new to Redeemer, Jeremy is usually up here. This is not normal. Uh, but he is preaching in Lubbock today, so I'm going to stand in and we'll continue on in Luke like we've been. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, we are in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 39. And so if you are new to Redeemer, we, be, we preach through books of the Bible, and we've been in Luke for a few months now. And I'd say up until this point in Luke, uh, Jesus has been causing a commotion pretty much everywhere that he's going. He's delivering some hard teachings. He's making some bold claims. He is healing people. He's performing miracles. He's hanging out with the worst of sinners. He's saying people's sins are forgiven. And it's really riling up the religious elite. And so uh, last week, we saw J.R. He went over three parables uh, touching on the importance of hearing God's word, right? And in each parable, Jesus says, hey, listen up. Hear the word of God. How you hear is important. And anytime we see in the Bible three, something repeated three times, we better take notice of it, right? It's almost like, as parents, when you tell your kids, there's times when you need to listen, and then there's times you need to listen, right? Like that. Eyes up here. Hey, look at me. Hey, Clara did it. See? That's good. You know, but it's that. Stop and pay attention to what I'm saying. And what are we doing in that moment as parents, right? We are trying to get our kid to see that the path they're on or about to embark on is going to lead to destruction, right? We want to get them to turn away from it. And that's what Jesus is doing in those parables to his disciples and to the crowd. He's trying to say, hey, how we listen to the Word of God matters, and it's important. But Luke, he shows us the true nature of humanity, because when someone comes talking and teaching and acting the way Jesus does, we need more than just words, right? We need to see some credentials. And so throughout Luke, he shows people asking the question, who is this guy? Like, who is this man that says he can forgive sins? So there's a, uh, a show on TV called Undercover Boss. And if you're not familiar with the show, the premise is a founder or CEO of a very large company will disguise himself and go undercover into uh, his company at an entry-level position. And it's just kind of to see how the company's running on the lower level uh, and how things are going. And sometimes it's going well, the employees are doing what they should be doing, and he reveals himself, everybody's happy, and they get raises. But then there's other times that it's not going so well. And whether it's the guy training the CEO or his immediate boss, uh, they're either breaking the rules or they're abusing their power. And what's interesting is that the CEO will say, hey, doesn't the employee handbook say we should do this? Or aren't the company core values this? And then oftentimes the bad employees will get incredulous or defensive, like, who is this guy? Like, this is how things work around here. Like, what power do you have to tell me how things are going to be? And then at the end of the show, there's the big reveal, right? And then the bad employees are like, uh-oh. Uh like, they have that realization, like, I'm in trouble because the founder of the company just saw me breaking all these rules. And so in the passage that we're going in today, Luke's going to reveal to us that Jesus truly has the power and authority to back up what he teaches. And we're actually going to see three specific aspects of his power. One, that his power is absolute. 
Two, his power is purifying. And three, his power has purpose. So let's go ahead and we'll jump in the passage. This is chapter 8, verse 22. One day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. And for a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart to the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man, entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. And when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed, then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. All right, so... There's a lot going on in these passages. Uh, let's look back at verse 22. It says Jesus decides, hey, we're going to go sail to the other side of the lake. So the lake in the story is the Sea of Galilee. And geographically, the Sea of Galilee sits about 700 feet below sea level. And 30 miles away from the Sea of Galilee, there's mountains. And so when the cold air from the mountains comes down and meets the hot air from the lake, you get very violent very quick, popping thunderstorm. It's kind of like the panhandle in the summertime, right? You know, on any given day, we can have thunderstorms pop up. I know a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to the radio, and this guy, the weather guy's like, it's clear skies, there's not a cloud in the sky, and it was thundering on, like lightning storm on top of me. So, I mean, it just pops up, and that's what we see in the Sea of Galilee. That's what the Sea of Galilee is known for, is these fast, violent thunderstorms that just come out of nowhere. And this is what's happening here. It says in verse 23, a windstorm comes upon them, and they are in trouble. They are taking water on. And I want to point out 
a few details here. Uh, the first one is this. This was not a small John boat, okay? This was holding at least the 12 disciples and Jesus. It was a sailboat, so it had a mast in the center of the boat, and it was big enough for Jesus to lay down and sleep on. So all that to say, that lends credibility to how bad the storm really was, right? The other thing that lends credibility is that several of the disciples are seasoned fishermen. So when they are afraid, things are really bad indeed, right? And so it would kind of be like, say we're to have a thunderstorm today, and someone who is overly fearful of storms, no, I'm not naming names, Eden, were to call me and say, hey, a storm's coming, it's going to be bad, we need to take shelter. Yeah. You know, like, I'd be like, okay, a storm's coming, but I'm not worried about it. Say a Rex McKay or a Mike Buck were to call me and say, a storm's coming and we're all going to die. My hiney is running to the nearest storm shelter ASAP, right? Because what we're seeing in the stories, these guys weren't rookies, right? They knew what they were doing on the sea, and they see, they're saying, hey, we're going to die. And that just shows how bad the storm was. So, the disciples are thinking they're dead. And where's Jesus? Just sleeping. No big deal. And uh, I love how Luke shows Jesus' humanity right right before he goes full-on God mode. And so, it's a perfect picture of how he's both God and man. And the disciples wake him up. They're saying, Master, we're going to die. And he wakes up. He rebukes the storm, and it stops. In Mark's account of the same story, Jesus says the words to the storm, peace, be still, or be quiet, be still, like he's talking to a child. And the storm stops. Like, if I'm honest, 50% of the time, I don't know if I could get my kid to stop. You know, but Jesus just looks to the storm and is like, hey, stop it. And it does. And so this is where we see that Jesus has power that is absolute. Jesus commands the storm to stop, and Luke says that the wind and the raging waves ceased, but he takes it a step further by saying, and there was a calm. So the Greek word used here for calm is used to describe an unruffled surface of a body of water. So what it's saying here is that the lake became as smooth as glass. So when I was a kid, I had a pool growing up, and my friends and I would like to make waves in the pool, much to my father's displeasure because we just wanted to get it rocking, and you know, it's just more fun when there's waves. And so we'd do it for five minutes, he'd come out, yell us to stop, and we'd stop, but the waves wouldn't stop, right? Five, ten minutes later, it's still going. And so I think Luke and the other gospel writers included this detail on purpose, because anyone can cast doubt on the story and be like, well, maybe the storm was already about to die. You know, he stood up and he got lucky and just said, stop it, and they gave him credit for a miracle. But even if he did get lucky, how do you account for the calm? So it's saying the wave stopped on a dime. It went from crazy to still like that. So this was no coincidence that Jesus did this. And that's also why we see the disciples' reaction included in the story. It says once he calms the storm, they were afraid. Why were they, ref- why were they afraid? Why didn't they start you know, hooping and hollering and slapping them on the back? Because in the Old Testament, God alone is the only one who can control the wind and the waves. Let's look at Psalm 135, 
Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in all of the seas and all deep. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, and who brings forth the wind from his storehouse. And then we'll jump over to another psalm, Psalm 107, verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. So it sounds familiar, right? So, the disciples are afraid because they're realizing the implications of what Jesus did and what that means. They just saw their friend and teacher wield absolute power over a force that humans can't control. And it causes them to fear and to marvel. Like, who is this guy? Even the wind and the waves obey him. But Jesus isn't done yet. So look at, again at verse 26. So they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus stepped out on the land, there met with him a man who had demons. So right away, a demon-possessed man confronts Jesus. And that's not anything new at this point. We've seen in Luke that he has cast out demons before. Uh, but what is interesting are the details that Luke gives surrounding the man. So let's look at these. So in verse 28, when he sees Jesus, he cries out and falls down before him, which is a recognition of Jesus' power. And he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? Well, remember back just a few verses ago, the disciples are asking, who is this guy? And ironically, we get the answer from a demon-possessed Gentile. And Luke also includes in the account that the man was bound with chains and that he would break them. He would wander off. He tells us the demon's name, Legion, indicating that there are many demons in this man. Uh, Roman Legion around this time period would contain anywhere from five to 6,000 soldiers. So I'm not saying that there's 5,000 demons in the guy, but suffice to say, there's a lot of demons in the guy. And finally, look how Jesus talks to the demons. He commands the demons to come out, and later he gives them permission to go over to the pigs. So what, why is Luke including all these details? And I think he is again showing us the absolute power that Jesus has. It shows us the supernatural force that he was up against. Uh, this wasn't one demon, it was thousands. The guy was so strong, he was breaking chains. It said he was kept under guard, but he would escape. Humans couldn't contain him. So if there were ever a force that could put up a fight against Jesus, it would be this army of demons, right? And like the storm, Luke is showing us that Jesus has control over things that no human uh, can control. And like when dealing with the storm, we see Jesus simply speak, right? He doesn't hype himself up, like, all right, Jesus, here we go, got this. He doesn't do an incantation. He doesn't even raise his voice. He doesn't call on a higher power. He simply speaks and says, get out, and the demons do. And we see this amazing exchange between the demons and Jesus. 
they are begging him not to send them into the abyss or hell, uh, but rather, let's go over to the pigs on the hillside. So maybe at this point, you're asking the question, WTP, Jesus, why the pigs? What's, what's going on with the pigs? What do the pigs do to anyone? And what do the pig herders do, right? They're just trying to bring home the bacon. What did they do? Thanks, David. Uh, so the short answer to this is I'm not really sure why the pigs. Um, there's a lot of good reasons and answers. Uh, one commentator said that the pigs were being driven to the sea uh, just to show us that there's a cost and a sacrifice to dealing with evil. Another thought is that Jesus is showing people and his disciples the value of a human soul is worth more uh, than the value and economic cost of a herd of animals. At this time, that would have been a lot of money that just went to the sea. But the idea I like is the one that's more consistent with the theme of Luke's passage here. And it's that the pigs gave the disciples and the witnesses of this miracle a tangible image of the demonic force that was in this man. Right? In Mark's account, it says that he had about 2,000 pigs in the herd. Because it's one thing to say, yeah, there's a bunch of demons in the guy, and Jesus told him to leave, and they just went off into the air, and it was cool, he was healed. But it's another thing to see this demon force wreck a whole herd of pigs. You can see the reality of his power. And so, much like the calming of the storm, going from rough seas to glass in mere moments, I think Luke is just trying to convey how real Jesus' power is. And then look at verse 34. This is kind of the mic drop moment of Jesus' power when it says, so he gave them permission. He just says to an army of demons, yeah, that's fine. You can go over there. <laughs> what? What kind of power is this? You know, it kind of strikes a tone similar to the story in Job. This is where Satan goes before God and he asks God if he can test and tempt Job. And it says God gives them permission. And so, this is what absolute power looks like. It's when the most powerful creatures in the universe go before your Creator and say, can we go do this thing? And we see Jesus wield that kind of power. But not only, this isn't the only thing we see about the power of Jesus, we also see that His power purifies. So in the whole passage of the demon-possessed man, everything about the setting is unclean. Right? So the country of the Gerasenes was a Gentile-dominated land, the part of the Decapolis, so uh, mostly Gentiles lived there. And Gentiles are basically anyone not a Jew. And Jews often viewed Gentiles as unclean because they didn't follow the law, and they also ate unclean animals. And so Jews would often call Gentiles dogs or pigs. So when Jesus sets out to the Gerasenes, he's intentionally going over to what was deemed an unclean land. And so, uh, more details about the passage that show it's unclean. We see in verse 27, the demon-possessed man was naked. And that should bring our minds back, or as Jeremy says, hearken our mind back to Genesis. When Adam and Eve, when they first sinned against God, they realized they were naked, and they are ashamed. And so they cover themselves up. So this man is naked and shamed. And then, he also lived among the tombs. In the Old Testament, any time that someone dealt with something dead, they were considered unclean for a, a specific amount of time. Uh, there's also a herd of pigs nearby, which, animals which the law says are unclean. And it says that he had an unclean spirit. And 
To take it a step further, even the unclean Gentiles of the city kept him bound and under guard to keep him them to keep him away from them. But after coming into contact to Jesus, with Jesus, what happened? After Jesus drives the demons out, it says in verse 35, the people of the city came out and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, and he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. So he wasn't roaming around the tombs anymore. He was clothed, so he's no longer naked and ashamed. He's in his right mind, so he's no longer screaming and acting demented. So Jesus, in this scene, takes the most unclean person that a Gentile or a Jew could imagine, and he makes them clean. And not only that, but Jesus made a statement to his disciples that he has come to save not only the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. And this should be good news for us. In Matthew 15, 18-20, Jesus says this, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. So our sin makes us unclean before God, but Jesus has the power to purify us. And while we might not be possessed by a demon like the man in the story, we're all under the influence of sin. And some of us today might feel like the man in the story where our sin has us uh, entrapped, um, imprisoned, and you can't break free. But sin, like the storm and the demons, is a force that can't be controlled by us, right? It is outside of our control. Or maybe you think, I'm too stained by sin. I'm just too dirty. Jesus can't clean me up. So a few days ago, I found myself into a YouTube vortex, what I call it, and that's where you just start watching videos and they suggest more videos and you get to some really weird places. But uh, I, found, I stumbled on this video of this guy that cleans carpets and just 30-year-old nasty carpets and he just shows how he gets them all clean. And so this one was a dark gray carpet with maggots in it and I'm watching it and I'm like, there's no way. And it, it was actually a white carpet. <laughs> so he cleans the carpet and I'm like, okay, that's, that's clean, but would you eat off of it? Yeah, after seeing that, probably not. And so I feel like sometimes with our sin, we feel that way. Like, okay, Jesus cleaned us right, but are we really that clean? But what we see here is that Jesus purifies us, right? In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he says, If we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He gets rid of all unrighteousness. He washes us white as snow. And this is a purifying power that frees us from sin. Because he, if he can free a man from the hold of a thousand demons, he can free us from anything. You know, as I was preparing for the sermon, I was really struck by the fact that anytime Jesus wields his power, he doesn't use it for himself. Right? He always uses it to help others, to teach, to serve others. Uh, there's never a time where he's like, man, I'm hungry, and he picks up a rock and is like, bread. You know, like he doesn't use it selfishly, and he's intentional with his power. And that leads us to the final point, is that his power has purpose. And I know we've been jumping around a lot, but let's go back to verse 22, 
Because at a first read, it kind of seems random that Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, let's go across the lake. But as we've already seen, the plan was in place that he was going to go heal that demoniac. He had the plan in place. But this is kind of the part of the story where it might be difficult to accept. It was also on purpose that he took his disciples into the storm. Because we've got to realize when we're looking at the story, the disciples didn't do anything wrong. They were actually obedient to Jesus, but yet they still find themselves in a life-threatening storm. So why did Jesus do that to his disciples? Doesn't that seem like a harsh way to treat obedience? Well, let me ask the parents in the room, if you have a two- or three-year-old or have had a three-year-old, who, when they're getting their shots, understands why they're getting their shots? It's easy. Zero. Right? Because you just took a perfectly good day and ruined it by taking them to the doctor and stabbing them with needles. And it doesn't matter what you tell them. They don't get why they're doing it. Or how many of you have had kids that question and fail to understand why you make them do something that's difficult for them at the time? Because as parents, we have a better perspective on what's good for these kids than they do. So how much more so does God have a better perspective on what we need than we do? So what was the point of Jesus bringing the disciples into the storm? And I think it's tempting for us to look at the story and say, well, Jesus was showing his disciples that he can get you through any storm in life. And while that's true, I don't think that's the main point. I think what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and us is that his purpose and his will will not be stopped. Because at this point, he told his disciples, we're going over to the other side. And one of his disciples is Peter, which earlier in Luke was already beginning to recognize that Jesus is God. And so if he told them we're getting to the other side, then you're getting to the other side, right? And no, nothing's going to stop you. No nature, nothing. And so, that's why he rebukes the disciples in this story. is because he says, where's your faith? Despite all that they have seen and heard Jesus up to this point, in that moment, they didn't believe that he was enough. And they thought, well, it's the end of the line. Here we go. Uh, we might as well go wake them up and let them know we're all going to die. But that's where the disciples messed up. And I think that's where we continue to mess up in our faith, is that whatever storm that we find ourselves in today, you see the wind and the waves, and you start to think, Jesus isn't enough. He isn't enough to get this through, to get me through this. But we have to ask ourselves a question. What's his purpose for us? Is it to deliver us from every storm, to make life easier for us so we live to a ripe old age? And the answer has to be a resounding no. Because there's two elephants in the room. One is sin, right? That sin leads to a brokenness in the world and in relationships, and storms are just naturally going to come as a result of that. But the second elephant in the room is death. Death comes for us all. No one escapes it. So we have to realize one day there's going to be a storm that we don't make it through. So then, Jesus must have another purpose for us. Let's look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 10. Get an idea of what God's purpose for us is. Verse 4. 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good work, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul saying Jesus and God's purpose for us is to show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in the coming ages, and that we are his workmanship, created to walk in good works that he made beforehand. And so we see a snippet of this with the healing of the demoniac, right? That Jesus heals this man, he cleanses him from an unclean spirit, showing grace to him. And then look at verse 37. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were filled with a great fear. So the first few times reading this, I had the thought, this isn't going very well for Jesus, right? You know, the people are scared, they're asking him to leave. They didn't even thank him for fixing the neighborhood menace. Uh, you know, but we've got to look at 38. Verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone had begged that he might be with Jesus, but he sent him away saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So Jesus wasn't thwarted by the people asking him to leave because he commissioned the man that he healed to stay in his hometown and continue to share the gospel. And much like the parable of the sower that we heard about last week, we see Jesus plant a seed in good soil, and it's already yielding results. Because this man's going to keep proclaiming the gospel in his city, and point people to Jesus, sowing the word of God more and more in the city, paving the way for more Gentiles to enter the kingdom of God. This man is walking in the good works that God has made for him beforehand. But we also see a hint at the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in this passage. So Tim Keller is a pastor in Redeemer Church in New York City. He made this observation that Luke is foreshadowing a day is coming that when Jesus will ultimately switch places with the demon-possessed man on our behalf. So there's a day coming when Jesus will be stripped naked and kept under guard. A day coming when he will cry out, with a loud voice, and be placed in a tomb. And he did that for us. He died the death that we deserve so that we might be made alive in him. And this is the ultimate purpose of Jesus' power and what we see him working towards in all of the gospel accounts, that he wants to turn us from being enemies of God to being children of God, to take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And if we can see this purpose, if we can see and believe what he sacrificed to show us his grace and kindness to us, if we place our trust in Jesus, then we can face any storm that comes our way, whether we survive it or not. Because as storms come, we can rest in the assurance that Jesus has accomplished in us what he set out to do, that we can rest in the hope of his resurrection and that we will be with him in the ages to come. Because... What can nature do to us? What can demons throw at us? 
What sin can enslave us? Everything pales in comparison to the power of Christ. So whether you're currently in the midst of a storm, or if you feel like you're just stuck in sin that you can't get out of, Jesus has power that is absolute and power that will purify you and set you free. As we respond to his word this morning in worship, uh, as followers of Christ, we can respond in joy for what he has done for us. Or if you're here this morning and you still feel like he isn't enough, uh, that storms in life are going to overtake you, ask him for help. Lord, help my unbelief, and he will be gracious enough to answer your prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Son. Thank you that he has power to save us, power to purify us, and help us to draw near to you. Lord, today I pray that you will soften our hearts to hear your word. I pray that your spirit will move. Father, as we sing to you this morning, I pray that our hearts will lift you up in worship. We will be thankful for what you've done for us. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.